Welcome to Practically Christian. I'm Jake, and I'm here with Luke. Hi, everyone. And Janelle. Hi, guys. We share conversations that help you know Jesus more deeply and follow him more faithfully. The truth is, no one has arrived at Christ's likeness. To grow in that direction, we believe you need authentic relationships and biblical theology applied to your everyday life. We hope that you are encouraged to grow and to live out the biblical truths that we discuss on this episode. Let's get practical and dive into a conversation about creation, science, and the tension between these two subjects. To get the conversation started, uh, when have you guys seen or experienced this tension, um, whether genuine or perceived tension, at least between faith and science? The thing that comes to mind for me is I was exp- I was describing once to a friend like kind of a I want to say a supernatural experience or like a God moment where it was like obviously God led me to this um, event that I I don't know that it was, was like a Holy Spirit nudge that yeah you Holy Sp- Spirit nudge that basically sent me to go help somebody that needed help that I wasn't going that direction and I wouldn't have gone to help them and then um, I was telling that to my friend and he was kind of like well you know there's there's probably some scientific reason we haven't discovered yet of like some, you know, maybe hormones in the air or something that led you to feel that someone was distressed and that they needed help or whatever. And I was just like, Ugh. <laughs> like, no, like, uh, didn't you even say like science of the gaps? Yeah. Can science of the that? gaps. Cause I, I mean the, the classic line is God of the gaps, which just means if I don't understand it, we'll just attribute that to supernatural mm, yeah. powers. A- anything that we don't have an explanation for, oh, God did it. Like, yeah, and then it. here was this other situation where I was like, this was obviously like a nudge from God that I experienced in my life that had direct fruit and like direct evidence that it was, I don't get random nudges to go places. Like that doesn't happen to me. And then I did, and it was like someone was in need there. So Unless there's hormones in the air. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing that he was like, well, someday maybe we will, we would understand like how that, mm-hmm. how someday that will understand a sixth sense and how that works. Scientifically. Yeah. There's like a sixth sense, but it's just a, you know, a evolved thing that we somehow pick up on yeah. something. And I was just like, no, but I don't know. That was like a, you know, a natural, a purely naturalistic worldview coming up mm-hmm. against my, you know. Faith story. Yeah, religious understanding of God intervening and um, carrying out his will through people, including me. Yeah, so for me, I think when I graduated high school, uh, my high school had this thing where you had to, like, talk to a panel of three people about, like, what you wanted to do in the future Mm -hmm. and why that was a good goal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I talked about how um, I wanted to... Um, be a Christian who could teach classes because at the time I wanted to be an English teacher, mm-hmm. um, but do it in a like teach people how to critically think. Mm-hmm. And one of the people who was like on this panel was like, "Well, that doesn't make any sense because Christianity is entirely faith based, and faith has no realm with science." And I was like, "Do you understand what faith means?" And so we ended up for like half of this supposed to be like interview thing arguing about faith, and he him basically saying, "Faith is blind." Mm-hmm. And me saying, no, it doesn't have to be. And then mm-hmm. me getting a, like, C- minus because I didn't agree with him. <laughs> uh, that's hard. Yeah. So, that's a good example. Yeah, I, I don't feel like I've personally gotten in a lot of conflict or tension with this, but I've seen it in the, the youth 
um, throughout the years in our youth ministry of hearing stories about, and, and it's actually sometimes it's troubling where you were like, yeah, good job standing up for your faith. And then sometimes like, uh, I don't know whether to tell you good job or not. Like we had one time a youth basically bragging about basically being rude to their science teacher because they were in the part of the content and curriculum where they're talking about evolution and the student was just basically like not simply saying like I disagree with that but they're like you're dumb for thinking this and, and then they were all proud of themselves like they, they did such a great job standing up for their faith and it, it was this troubling thing I was like I, I don't think you actually did a great job standing up for your faith so um I mean, this comes up a lot, uh, this, the tension between science and faith. So in this series of theology, we've been looking at the doctrine of creation, um, what it can teach us about who God is, um, whether or not this is an essential of the faith, or what about this is an essential of the faith. In fact, three episodes we talked about that subject, we said that there's room for disagreement among Christians about how God chose to create, but there is not room for disagreement with the idea that God is actually the creator God. And the historic creeds say, we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And Genesis 1 opens and says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we believe that at the beginning of everything is ultimately God, that he's the first cause um, of creation and us. Sometimes I think the conflicts that come out between science and faith are actually about peripheral issues. And what I mean is, if that is the essential of a faith, that there is a creator God, how much of the conflict that you guys see and hear about or experience yourself is about that question and how much is it about other more peripheral subjects? Yeah, it's almost all peripheral. Like like talking about the dinosaurs and talking about evolution and, and that kind of thing where if you could say... I could grant you evolution, but God created yeah. to begin, and he, you yeah, know... What, what was before evolution? Yeah, yeah, like he created life, and then that's how he chose to bring life to where it is now. Um, I mean, I, I know a lot of Christians who would very strongly disagree with what I just said and say, no, evolution, no. <laughs> but, right. um, but yeah, if you were just getting down to, you know, the origin of life... Um, I think that would be one where creation mm-hmm. is a significant player in the science versus creation conversation. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that creation itself is is a big deal, but a lot of times we get wrapped up in, again, those questions of how did God choose to create, um, how old is the earth, things like that. Yeah, yeah the geologic record and mm-hmm. um, and kind of like the, I want to say simplistic, like this is what we know for sure. Um, kind of coming from a scientific perspective, which oftentimes changes, which is kind of funny. But, um, yeah, I would say. No, I like uh, G.K. Chesterton at one point said um, when he was talking about history and, like, science throughout history, and he was like, yeah, no one can really do science in history. They just kind of make assertions, and then when those assertions don't end up being enough, they just make more assertions on top of it until you just have this mountain of quote-unquote history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some ways both sides kind of do that, mm-hmm. where they just kind of say, you know, no one can tell us if evolution happened and how it happened because no one who is now was there, and no one who was there wrote about it. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just people going back and forth and saying, sure, this happened. I believe this for reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know if that... Yeah, I mean, carbon dating, I think, is one that I've heard of as far as, like, dating the age of different things that they find. And then, um, like, the geologic record as far as, like, layers of mm-hmm. earth and... Um, things not being where they should... Yeah, or even, like, you know, this is how old this thing is in this layer, and this is how old this thing is in this layer, and obviously those layers are different and stacked. So mm-hmm. that's like part of dating as well. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. but Yeah. I, whenever I hear that, I always have to think about it. And I don't know how, how much of this is 100% correct, but there's uh, one of my roommates in college always said, you know, people used to create uh, date rocks by the fossils that were in them, and now they date the fossils by the rocks. And like that's this like kind of like this loop where mm. even no matter how good our science is, we can't really tell you very accurately what it is we can tell you this is old and this is older mm-hmm. but it'd be very hard to say this is this old or this went to this kind of stuff i don't know mm-hmm. um and i think that all kind of goes to the peripheral issues where it doesn't really matter how old that rock is mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter how old the fossil in the rock is yeah. um it or at least it doesn't matter to the question right of genesis yeah i was gonna say it, it matters if you have a certain reading of Genesis 1 and you think that is the only Orthodox Christian scriptural view and you're trying to defend that. But again, part of our heart is to say, like, actually there's a diversity of Christian views about how God chose to create. And so, like, let's not focus the conversation on the things we disagree about. Like, let's join forces and defend what we all agree on, that God is ultimately the creator so in the last episode, we talked about how Genesis 1 is really more theological in nature. It's talking about the nature of who God is and also really who we are as humans in our place in this world that God created. But that said, that doesn't mean that Genesis 1 has nothing to say about science. Again, it says that there is a creator God behind everything. So I believe that the real conflict is not actually between science and faith but a particular view of how science works, which is called methodological naturalism. So we need to do some work here and define some terms. So let's just talk for a minute about what science is and then what this um, particular view of what science is called methodological naturalism. So Jake, why don't you help us out with this? So science, according to dictionary.com, the dictionary that we all use, uh, is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. That's a mouthful. So let's break that down. So uh, use observation and experiment to study the natural world and seek to understand it, right? So science limits itself to the study of the natural world. Now, methodological naturalism goes a step further than this. Methodological naturalism is a philosophical worldview about science that says, and that's all there is. In other words, there is only the natural world. That's the only thing we should study because there is nothing beyond that. It's a materialistic view of the world and the universe that all that there is is the physical stuff around us. And so if we can study that and understand it, then we've answered everything because that's all that there is. So you're saying it takes it from it takes it to a philosophical perspective as opposed to um, no. just saying like this is a domain of study, which is what science is. Right. It's, it says that 
not only is this the domain of study of science, but it says like, yeah, that, um, there is no other domain domain besides the natural world. And so if something happens, there has to be a scientific explanation and a natural explanation Mm -hmm. because not because it is not because we found one, but because it just has to be that way. Yeah. An analogy to this would be someone studying art and saying, in our study of art, we can't just look at all the information. We have to limit ourselves to only looking at the painting. So I don't want to hear about the the time period. I don't want to hear about the history of the region. I don't want to hear about the artist's life and personal preferences. I just want to look at this piece of art, study this piece of art, and that way I can understand it completely. And in that analogy, it's pretty obvious that actually you're cutting out ways of learning about that painting that you were looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's limiting your field of study. And again, the problem is not just like methodological naturalism even goes a step beyond that. It's it's not even saying like we want to limit the study to this. It's saying like, and that's all there is. There's just this painting and (laughs) like there is nothing else. The the painter isn't. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, so a quote that helps explain this, um, scientist S.C. Todd wrote, Even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. So again, that's the view of methodological naturalism. Which actually is kind of a, a, a good point, that it's true. If, if all of the data points to an intelligent designer then the answer isn't science to study it. Mm. Now, his issue is that he says there is nothing else and it can't be anything else. Right. But it's a good point. There is a limit to science, mm-hmm. and we have to see that limit. We used this analogy in a previous episode, but we've talked before about like the whole idea of like a birthday cake and how a scientist could analyze that and tell you its chemical makeup and lots of facts about it. But simply by studying that birthday cake... You can't know who created it and why they created it. Uh, you, you can't deduce that from simply studying the cake itself. And in a similar way, it's like science's domain of study is the natural world. What is here and how do those things work that are here? But it's actually outside of its domain of study to question why is there something rather than nothing. Now you're into the realm of philosophy and theology and it's actually science is overstepping its bounds when it says there is nothing there. There is no supernatural. It's like, no, like that would be saying, oh, we've figured out who made this cake for sure. It's like you can't discern that from the cake itself. It just doesn't work. Going like to that quote from Mr. Todd, um, we see that you can't actually come to his conclusion through scientific means. Mm-hmm. You end up taking it on faith it's there is science and nothing else but that's not because we've studied it or have evidence of that which is how science is supposed to work it's just we know that science works and kind of like this backwards reasoning of because we know science works nothing else works Mm -hmm. right it will eventually explain everything yes Um, even if we can't explain everything now like Janelle was saying that the science the gaps kind of view now I will say like uh, we were talking about before the podcast, and now you had a great point that in some ways, 
maybe as a scientist, it's actually good to have the view that there is an explanation. I don't know what it is, but there is one and I can find it if I seek hard enough, you know? Yeah, I feel like a pushback I would have to this whole episode if I were on the other side of the line, I want to say, would be there have been lots of instances in history where Christians and other religious groups have said, we can explain this phenomena that is inexplicable to the world and we're going to do that with a religious Mm-hmm. explanation yeah. um, so for instance there are people who have mental illness that's you know chemical imbalance in their brain and yet people could say well it's because they sinned or because they have a demon or something like that where they're like basically displaying mental illness traits mm-hmm. and then you could come up with some mysterious you know yeah. explanation out of your you know religious worldview that kind of precludes the study of what might actually be going on. So I think we want to say we do affirm <laughs> and believe that there that science is real. I want to say that um, yeah. like I keep seeing these signs around that have a list of things that they say, and I don't agree with all of them necessarily in the way that they're intended. But a lot of them have really obvious statements, like we believe science is real. <laughs> um, yes, yes, we believe that. We- we Science is real. <laughs> we do too. Right. Um, and we believe that God is real. Yeah. So, And maybe we don't believe in some of the baggage that people would assign to science is real or even God is real mm. when they hear that. You yeah. know? Um, and I think part, part of the conversation has to be the argument that happened a long time ago about uh, the beginning of time and if time had a beginning. Yeah. And that for centuries and centuries uh, from the Enlightenment, mm-hmm there was this belief that the universe was infinitely old. That's why you get the whole monkeys typing on a typewriter um, will eventually create the universe argument. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because they believed that the universe was forever old. Eternal, yeah. Um, And there was a group of monks who argued, no, the universe can't be forever old because if there was no beginning, it would be like a man trying to jump out of a pit that has no bottom. We never would have even started. Interesting. And like... Philosophically, if there is no beginning to time, we never would get to where we are now. And so then when they finally in the 1920s or 30s were like, wow, you're right, there is a start to time. Some of the Christians were like, yeah, we, we know. Right. <laughs> um, and so it kind of like, I think it goes both ways in like mm-hmm. being able to think about things um, in such a way to not hold on to them too tightly. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say... This is kind of a cliche, but all truth is God's truth. So God spoke and there was the world with physics and all kinds of stuff that is going on that wasn't necessarily delineated in the Genesis account, right? There's, Mm -hmm. it doesn't say, and he created these rules about gravity, you know, like that's not in there, but it's part of what he did. And so when we discover these things, all truth is God. Well, it is interesting, too, that that science arose in um, this kind of Western worldview that was steeped in Christianity because the idea was, like, because God is actually logical and makes sense and... Not chaotic. And not chaotic, yeah. We can trust that he created an ordered world and that if we study it, we'll we'll be able to figure out that order. So actually, in, in some ways, like, science stands on Christianity because it presupposes an ordered world. Like, if you don't... Um, like there's other 
cultures that never got to science because there was no reason to believe that there would be order underneath the structures of the world. Yeah, actually that relates to, in our last episode, we talked about um, the vice regency of humanity and like how humans are given power by God to rule over creation. And I think science is an example of that. Like, let's figure out how electricity works and then put it to use use for our purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, As much as we don't want to just sandbag on one like idea there is some big problems with this idea of methodological naturalism Mm -hmm. that go beyond science right Mm -hmm. because like we were saying we agree that science can be done and should be done but when you make a philosophical statement that it is the only thing that should be done or that can be done the natural world is all there is yeah then you run into some problems what do you guys think are some of those problems I think morals and moral reasoning is one of them. Um, I remember hearing this, and I, sorry, I don't have the exact um, quote or like the person who said it, but there was basically someone who came out with like an an academic article on rape, and it was like, oh, it kind of makes sense because of our Darwinian understanding of humanity, like yeah. we're animals, and it you was know, like an evolutionary view of. Rape is beneficial for the survival of the species because then you'd have more offspring, right? Wasn't it something? Yeah, like- something like that. It was like, well, yeah, it makes sense that, you know, people with power would use that power to, you know, take what they wanted or <laughs> whatever. And like, and that it's, yeah, like a, a survival um, thing. And so, and then like there was this huge backlash, like, this is horrible. Like, I can't believe that you would say such a thing. But it's like, it is true if you remove everything else and all you have is evolution. Um, you really don't have a moral framework. So, yeah, Yeah, let's tease that out even further because some listeners might not be familiar with like all the pieces of that logic, but, but the logic is, is essentially that evolution is the idea that it's the survival of the fittest, right? And so if that concept is true over years and years, you end up with a set of traits in any given population that are simply beneficial for survival. There's no judgment on whether those things are good or bad. There's no ultimate right and wrong. They're just beneficial for survival or not. And whatever traits you have in a population by nature, if those are still in existence, then they're beneficial for survival. So you end up with this worldview that is unable to say certain things are wrong. Like it's like, no, if it's here, it was beneficial for survival somehow. End of story. Like, there's, there's nothing more you can say if you limit yourself to that perspective. Well, and I think, too, it, it's not just that. I think it's also, like, the determinism of the evolutionary worldview. So yeah. it's, like, you think what you think and you are what you are purely as a product of your, um, I want to say, yeah. space and time and your evolutionary genetics and whatnot. whatnot. So you are just what you are. And yeah. so you don't have personal responsibility as part of that picture. Well, and I think... Uh, some people would say, you know, that if that's how it is, then that's how it is. But I think that we, like the, the human experience, mm-hmm. there's an innate understanding that we have a free will or like a will to choose things. Yeah. And we're not just doing input-output. You know, we, we don't get input and then cause and effect happens in our brain and we do output. That's not what it feels like going on. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to make sense because sometimes what is outputted is not what logically comes from being inputted. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think the other problem with like that whole idea of input output is it gets rid of personal responsibility, not only in like, should I be responsible for someone else? But if I murder someone, I didn't have the ability to not murder that person because input led to output. Yeah. Um, and so the moral, I don't know, conundrums behind that just kind of go crazy and run yeah. rampant. No, they really do. I mean, I do feel like we do take in that into consideration, though. Mm-hmm. I want to say we don't throw out the input-output modality because that's true. Like, for instance, I just heard recently about it was a, a criminal um, death row case, and basically the guy who committed these murders, he had this horrible, horrific childhood and was like in the foster care system, mm-hmm. never had any kind of consistent love or affection or home, really. So I, w- I will say, like, when you take that into consideration, when you consider yeah. the moral choices that this person made, yeah. and he is in some ways a product of his um, mm-hmm. horrible upbringing or whatever. But I think in that we have to say that he had the ability not to do the horrible thing that he did. And that's what methodological naturalism says isn't true. The, the end of it is he did that and he had to do it and he had no other option. Yeah, just as a result of his genes and his biology and his life circumstances, it's kind of like the view of, like, you are basically, in essence, a really complicated, fleshy computer. And you've been genetically programmed to respond in certain ways to certain stimuli, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one thing that... I don't know if someone listening might go is like, that doesn't sound like what methodological naturalism is from what we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier, but it's kind of, it's the natural ends where if you follow methodological naturalism logically, that's where, that's where it ends up and it can't end up anywhere else. Yeah. No, it does. And I would just say, um, God takes all of your situations into account when he considers your moral choices. <laughs> like, yeah. He's not like, what? You chose that because mm-hmm. of what? You know, like he yeah. knows it all. He has the big picture. And so I think in some ways he is the only one who can be the just judge mm-hmm. because he does have that full picture. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, I, and I agree with what you're getting at that like, no, we should take into account people's circumstances. I think that is actually really important in justice and right and wrong. Um, but one of the problems, again, with methodological naturalism is that it actually doesn't do that, or, or it does it to such a degree that it undervalues it. It's like, that's all anyone ever does is just simply pre-programmed genetics and biology. There's no free will. They didn't exercise choice, ultimately. Any, any other issues you guys see with methodological naturalism? I mean, I, I do think, like, the science of the gaps, if we go back to that, it's like where you just assume there's answers. Um, and even for, I want to say, religious evidence, you know what I mean? Like, you could see someone witnessing a miracle with this mm-hmm. worldview. They're like, well, there's got to be a scientific reason, so it's not a miracle. <laughs> you know, like, where it's like, um, someone just walked on water, or, you know, and, like, if you witnessed that, you would just throw it out because it can't does, be... We know that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say, like... The miraculous is something that I feel like the Western church in a lot of ways has thrown out because it's hard to convince people who have this worldview um, that it's real. And in some ways, there are some Christian groups that embrace that Mm -hmm. um, and are just kind of like, well, all of these things are stories about Jesus's miracles. Um, 
But in contrast, if you're going to be true to what the Bible says, um, our whole faith rests on the biggest miracle of all, which is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. (laughs) Um, That he predicted, that he carried out, and then he ascended. So it's like miracle, miracle right there. So um, I want to say if you want to throw that out, then Christianity is thrown out too, and that makes sense why these these views are put in such tension Mm -hmm. with each other. It's true. Well, and even I think coming from that, we have, you could waste a lot of time where like if you saw Elijah on the, on the Mount Carmel, Mm -hmm. call down fire from heaven that completely takes up all of these stones and this water and the cow. And then you spent the rest of your life going, I know that that can be done naturally, but I don't know how, and I'm going to spend my whole life looking into it. That'd be a pretty wasted life. I don't know if that... Yeah. What I think is so ironic in some ways is I feel like there is a certain wonder that scientists have, that spark of wonder at what they're examining, Mm -hmm. whether that's astronomy or um, botany or whatever. Physics. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like there's like a spark of wonder. Yeah. Um, And I would say that's true even in atheist scientists, Mm -hmm. um, that there's this like, I don't know, infatuation or wonder about this creation that they're examining. So mm-hmm. I, I just think that's an irony there. Yeah, it is. So I like how, Janelle, you brought up kind of the, again, the, the science of the gaps, that tendency to talk about like, well, we don't have an answer for this now, but ultimately we will. And when I think about um, the current state of science, there are actually two really big questions that there are no good scientific answers for. And um, one of those is, why is there something rather than nothing? Or you could rephrase it as what caused the Big Bang? Um, how did the Big Bang occur? And then also the origins of first life. Um, and, and a lot of people maybe don't realize this, but um, I, I love this quote um, by Jacob Gold Sherman who said that Darwinism might explain the survival of the fittest, but it fails to explain the arrival of the fittest that actually there's not a good explanation for how the very first life happened. Even if you said evolution explains subsequent life, there's not a good explanation for first life. But again, I think the biggest, bigger problem is the Big Bang. Like, you have to explain somehow how this happened. Yeah, I mean, the the current view, and I think this has been in a lot of movies lately, is like the multiverse view. Right. Where it's like, there's infinite number of created universes and we just happen to be in one that has the right stuff to make life possible which sounds a lot like the monkeys typing argument of now instead we have less time but we have more monkeys (laughs) typing and eventually they're going to get shakespeare yeah yeah well and i would say the other problem with the multiverse view is it just pushes it back of like okay what's creating infinite numbers of universes what caused this multiverse then um Yeah, I actually came across a quote that responds to the multiverse view. Uh, Greg Easterbrook says, The multiverse theory requires as much suspension of disbelief as any religion. Join the church that believes in the existence of invisible objects 50 billion galaxies wide. (laughs) I just thought that was a great quote. Like, there's there's no natural evidence to support the belief in the multiverse, right? If you're talking about what science can actually prove... There's no repeatable, observable experiments you can do that would suggest that there is a multiverse. Well, and I think it kind of goes 
to like this idea when we were talking about G.K. Chesterton earlier with yeah. uh, kind of just like stacking assertions on assertions where it's like, because we know that there isn't a creator, we know that it had to come from somewhere. Yeah. We don't know how that works. So multiple universes. Yeah. It's like, okay, what's yeah. behind that? And like, it just like stacks yeah. on top of itself. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically taking like the survival of the fittest and applying that to universes. Yeah. Like we just happen to be the universe right. with life, yeah. you know, that yeah. survived the fittest universe <laughs> or whatever. And, and actually, I mean, that could be true. We might some day somehow come across evidence for the multiverse. I don't think we will, but even if we did, that just pushes the question back into that level of again, like what okay, is this who, creator? Yeah. Of, who or what caused the multiverse yeah, then and all these universes. Yeah. And in some ways that's even a more impressive act of creation that you have to have some accounting that started all of that. Yeah. I, I still think that the origin of life one though is like the most basic. I feel like the, I'm just not much into like, Oh, the universe so much mm-hmm. as like life is here and now and we can yeah. see so much diversity of life. Mm-hmm. So I think that one's a little bit more, I want to say gritty or yeah. concrete to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that we understand reproduction, even from cells, like if you look at cells and how they reproduce, you understand that you have to have a living cell to start that process. Yeah. So, um, I think that one is like a little bit more earthy and mm-hmm. like a little bit easier for people to connect to, at least people like me. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think that one, all of the scientific explanations that people have tried to make um, just have fallen flat. Like they're like, there was this stuff, and then there was some lightning, and it started. It's like when has lightning caused life? Like that never, never, never happened. It's like basically the death of whatever. Um, but yeah, just kind of like trying to come up with how this first life happened, or and the other one that. Um, some scientists even talk about is the seeding of life on earth. Like we were seeded and that just, again, pushes it back. Where did the alien's life come from that seeded, seeded life on earth? So, um, even if that's true, um, they had to have life begin at some point. Right. And you can kind of tell how desperate scientists who believe in methodological naturalism are to answer these questions because you have, uh, like Lawrence Krauss wrote a book that basically for 300 pages tried to say that something can come out of nothing just because it can. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This conversation reminds me of a joke I appreciate from John Orberg. He talks about this fictional story between, you know, this group of scientists debating with God and they're like, God, we don't need you anymore. We know how to make life now. And God's like, okay, let's have a contest. Let's see who can make life. And then the scientists, like, pick up some dirt to start working. God's like, no, 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 you make your own dirt. (laughs) Here are some suggested resources if you'd like to dig into this topic further. Uh, One is uh, Andy Stanley did a sermon series a couple years ago called Who Needs God? And especially the first message in that series is an exploration of um, where kind of the tenets of pure Darwinism lead on a practical level and that people don't really realize. And his whole point is like, if you are stepping away from Christianity, you should know what you're stepping towards. And these are beliefs that without realizing it, you may be walking towards. So that's a good resource. Um, Also, we're about to talk about apologetics in a moment. And William Lane Craig has um, great resources on this and specifically a few videos um, that give different apologetic arguments for the existence of a creator God. And we will link all of those to the show notes.
Yeah, I'll just say they're really good. Like you can you can follow along even if you're not um, familiar with the terminology and the kind of philosophical frameworks and that kind of thing. So yeah. um, if this was a lot, you were like, whoa, this is crazy stuff. I, I think these videos will actually be really helpful mm -hmm. to you. Yeah. Well, and with that introduction in mind, um, I want to hear from you guys because our application, what we're going to challenge our listeners to do is to learn about one of these arguments that support logically the existence of a creator God. Um, so when it comes to you, which of those kind of apologetic ways of arguing have been either most persuasive to you or have you found um, very helpful for outsiders or people who are unconvinced to consider that maybe there is a God after all? I mean, I think the one I like the best is the fine-tuning argument. Mm -hmm. So that basically is showing like there are certain constants that um, are very, very specific. And if they weren't within a very, very finite range, then um, life wouldn't be possible and the universe wouldn't be possible, basically. Um, and this is like well-known. Like it's not something that's disputed um, in the scientific community. So it's not like, oh, where do you think life came from, this or that? You know, like it's... It's much more like, yes, these are the constants. And yes, if they were beyond these ranges on all of, and there's like a whole list of them. It's not just one or two. It's like a bunch of them. So it's, um, the picture that they give in the video, if you go watch it, is kind of like a dial where you have to be within, it's kind of like if you were. An infinitesimally small range. Yeah. So if you were trying to like unlock a safe, for instance, and you have to get exactly to the numbers. Otherwise, it's not going to unlock. Um, it's kind of like that, but there's a safe that has... Thousands of locks. Yes. Or and something each, like and that. each knob is like 50 million numbers. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to be super, super precise in order to unlock the safe, and that's basically what it is. And there's no reasons that they have scientifically for why these are the constants mm -hmm. um, that we have in our universe um, that make life possible. So I think that one's really cool because it is just... I just want to say it just it makes me admire God's precision mm -hmm. and the order, yeah. the order. Yeah. That he made everything with such beauty and precision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, the one that is most interesting to me is the moral argument, mm -hmm. um, of simply that the morals that people operate with are morals given by God and they're Christian morals. Yeah. As I think that's like surprising to some people. And then kind of going from that, the, lack of morals that exists outside of, you know, religion and outside of Christianity specifically and kind of like showing people like, Hey, this is where your beliefs lead you, mm. whether you agree with it or not, this is the logical end. Yeah. Maybe you should find something else because yeah. in this one murder's okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I will say too, um, I think part of that is we're from a culture that's been formed by Christianity. And the other thing I'd like to add to what, what Jake just said is um, we're not saying at all that people who are Christians or claim to be Christians are, are morally in, superior. Yeah, cannot be capable of. Yeah. But we do have a self-corrective in Christianity of saying, like, you are wrong to have done that. Mm. So it's not like justifying, yeah. I want to say, anything yeah. that has ever happened. And we're also not saying that atheists are immoral. Yes. <laughs> well, and I think part of it is that it's all humans, because we're made in the image of God, understand morality yeah. just because we're human. And it's the these like logic, like the, the methodological naturalism thoughts mm -hmm. that lead to no morals. 
but no one actually does that. Yeah. Uh, Richard Dawkins talks about how um, there's no reason for morals, but he's glad we have them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, anyways, I uh, can I say a second one? Yeah. My, my second one is kind of fun. It's the, uh, the argument of beauty mm. that under a naturalistic worldview, there's no reason why anything would be beautiful or why we would appreciate beauty. Yeah. There's no evolutionary reason to appreciate yes. beautiful things. Yeah. And I just appreciate that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The thing I think of is, um, birds. I've heard that the evolutionary reason for why male birds especially tend to have like ridiculously long or fancy tails or feathers or whatever, um, is basically to show like, I can still survive even though my tail is two feet long kind of thing like, like this, like mm. I am so strong that this disadvantage makes me look so good kind of thing. Interesting. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but even if that's true, the reason isn't because it's like, oh, I'm so pretty. Look at me. Right. Yeah, it's right. like, yeah, yeah. it's like something else. And like, and yet we can look at these, you know, peacock mm-hmm. feathers and be like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And why would we do art? Yeah. If not for, right. Yeah. How does that help the species survive? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think my favorite one is the cosmological argument. Um, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's kind of just a simple structure of a, Everything that has a beginning has a cause. B, the universe has a beginning, the Big Bang. So therefore, the universe has a cause. Um, so it's not not yet getting to like the God of Scripture or the Creator God is presented in the Bible, but saying that that is a good con- candidate because, um, yeah, it's crazy to think that something could begin to exist without something causing it to exist. So you have to come up with some kind of cause for that. And what is that? And again, that's a big question that science has no answers to. And in some ways can't because it's based off of testable, observable, repeatable experiments, which by definition, the Big Bang is not testable, repeatable, observable. So our application this week is to encourage you guys to um, maybe watch these videos we'll put in the show notes. Um, And whether you watch those or not, we want to encourage you to learn one of these arguments for the existence of God because First Peter 3 says to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason for the hope that is within you um, and to do that with gentleness and respect. So we want to be prepared to defend the fact that there is a creator God that actually that is the best explanation for why there is something rather than nothing. So in closing, when I think of the atheistic worldview, um, it actually just causes me, I guess, to feel a little bit of sadness, um, in some ways, at least to me, compared to the view that Genesis 1 presents, it's, it's a sad view. I came across this quote from Richard Dawkins. He wrote, on one planet, Earth, and possibly only one planet in the entire universe, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they are capable of running, jumping, swimming, flying, seeing, hearing, capturing, and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. According to this view of the world and methodological naturalism, congratulations, you are a chunk of rock that just happens 
to be very complex and able to do these things. And at the end of the day, he will decompose into smaller chunks of rock. And that's the end, and that's all there is to it. Um, we want to encourage you with the view that Genesis 1 says that you are not simply a chunk of rock. Yes, you are made of dust, but you also have the ruach, the breath of God in you. And that God created you with a unique and special and amazing role in this world and universe. He created you as a vice regent to rule over creation with him. He made you capable of relationship with him, relationship with other humans. Um, and that is such a privileged, beautiful, uh, amazing gift that he has given to us. And so I uh, appreciate that this week.